Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So today I have with me Marla Taviano, and I'm so excited because I've been following her IG page where she features a lot of Black literature, Black authors, and she's probably the reason, one of the reasons why I still have a book addiction. So Marla, if you would, please introduce yourself and even your identities and all of that to our listeners. Thank you so much, Tasha. My name is Marla Taviano. My pronouns are she and her. And I do like, I love, I love books. Absolutely love books. I've been reading since I was four years old. I have not stopped. <laughs> and I also love writing, which has come out of my love for reading. So it's a um, one, two punch. I read, I write, I read, I write. <laughs> um, I am a mom of three daughters. They are 21, 19 and 16. My oldest is married. She and her husband, all of my children live with me. <laughs> um, I'm down here in South Carolina and I'm from Ohio. Yeah, I see your face. You're like, <laughs> you didn't know I was in South Carolina. You're in North Carolina, right? <laughs> yeah, so um, this is two years now that I've lived in South Carolina. So I'm an Ohio girl, lived there for 39 years. Our family lived in Cambodia for five years and um, right smack dab in the middle of a pandemic, actually the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020, we moved from Cambodia to Columbia, South Carolina. And then another part of my story is that just a few months after that, my husband left me unexpectedly. Um, and so I have been a single mom since then in the middle of a pandemic, coming back to the U.S. after five years <laughs> overseas. So just like everybody else um, on the planet there's been a lot going on in my life the past two years. But my biggest passions really besides people are books, books and, and writing. And I hope we get to talk about your book, Tasha, because I finished that a couple of weeks ago, loved it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Damn, we have a lot to talk about. One of the poems in your, there were so many that I resonated with, but at the very beginning of your book, you have a poem called Read Between the Lines. And you say, when everyone wants you to explain yourself, poetry is an act of resistance. And when I read that, it resonated with me because in me writing any kind of poetry, that is how my words are just like, I don't have time to give you like this long narrative of anything. It's very direct. I find it to be very direct and heart-centered. Yeah. But what did you mean by poetry being an act of resistance? Well, my book, which is called Unbelieve, and then the, the subtitle is Poems on the Journey to Becoming a Heretic, is all about my shifting faith over the last decade. Um, there are a lot of words for it. I know people are calling it deconstruction. Um, I know decolonization is a part of that. That's more of a um, 
I, I think that people of color use that. And I think white people can also use it too, because we've also got to decolonize our faith as the colonizers. <laughs> like we have to separate ourselves from that. Just like white people have to, um, have to disentangle ourselves from whiteness as a concept. For me, as I was writing, so I've always written about my life and things that have, have gone on. And as I was writing about this faith shifting journey, naturally, I wanted to, to write it down as it was happening, but it was changing so much. And I was learning so much every single day and everything. It was just, I couldn't write fast enough because I would look at something I wrote two months ago and think, well, that's, I'm so far beyond that now. I don't even know how, how to do that. And then I would have people, um, some people very close to me, actually, who would come to me recently and like in the last year and say, okay, I know that you don't believe these certain things anymore. And I know you've changed a lot, but could you just tell me like what it is that you believe now? Like they want me to put like this whole 10 year journey into this. Well, this is how I believe now, or this is everything I believe about white supremacy or anti-racism is right here in this like 30 second clip. <laughs> and so I, I look at this as I don't have to lay it all out. Like my story was kind of laid out in this long prose, boring as heck <laughs> kind of thing. And I thought, I don't have to do that. I can do like these poems. I can have, here's what I want to say. What do you think about this? Here's the information that I'm going to give you. I'm not going to give you the whole entire story. And so I, I'm, I'm very honest and upfront. I have been for a long time about my journey, about things that I'm going through. But I get to decide who I tell and when I tell and how much I say. That's my decision. So poetry for me has just been this really amazing way to, to make the choice, to decide what words I want to use, when I want to use seven words, when I want to use a whole bunch of words. Um, I have another poem that reminds me of this at the beginning of the book where it's called Bless His Heart. My dad wants me to write a blog post detailing all of my theological beliefs and why I believe them so I can put an end to the confusion and people can stop calling me a heretic. And the, <laughs> the reason I say bless, bless his heart, I, that's something I learned down here in the South. It's not, um, I thought it was a compliment. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a compliment, but just the idea, first of all, that I could put everything that I think and believe and feel into a blog post and the idea that reading that blog post would convince people that I'm not a heretic. <laughs> if I'm really going to be truthful and honest, that blog post would convince most uh, conservative evangelical Christians that I am a heretic, which is why I put the word heretic on the front of my book. I feel like it might turn some people away, but I also wanted to just put it out there and be upfront and say, listen, by your definition, I am a heretic. So I'm going to claim that. So if you want to come to me and, and call me that, it does nothing to me. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already claiming. Now, do I think I'm a heretic? Um, it depends on what you mean by that. Like I said, by, by that definition, I, 10 years ago, me, I would have called 2022 Marla a heretic, absolutely a heretic. But now I don't think that I am. <laughs> I love how you have taken that word heretic, which scares so many Christians. And, and there's a lot of fear in, in, in people, you know, what if I believe this? What if people think I'm a heretic? 
But I too am a heretic, depending on your definition, especially if we're talking about white American Christianity. I am mm-hmm. definitely, I'll be your heretic if that's what you want me to yeah. be. <laughs> yep. <laughs> isn't it beautiful the way that we can take these words and not just own it, but take away the power, you know, mm-hmm. previously used to harm, but we, we, we're taking our power back and, you know, with all of these criticisms and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. I see that a lot. I mean, throughout history where people take that back. Like even the word black, when that was taken back, um, going from being called colored to Negro and then people standing up and saying, you know what, I'm black and it's beautiful and it's powerful and I'm, that's what I am. So, um, and with the LGBTQ community taking back different words. Yeah, it's um, words. Well, I love words. (laughs) It's very fascinating to me what they, what they mean, what they stand for. And I think right now we're just really going through a bit, and we've always gone through this in our country, but especially now where different words are meaning different things and people are trying to take the meaning away or saying, I can say this word if I want, I don't care what it means to you. And I just really, uh, it takes a lot of learning, a lot of commitment to stay up with what words are um, hurtful, what words are powerful what words and the best way to do it is ask a person what words do you want me to use like because I want people to use words that that I like like for example this is just a mild example but I don't really like the word uh lady as far as like she's a nice lady I don't know that's always just seemed weird to me so I don't like to be called so if someone were to say that and again, I don't, this is not a big deal. I'm just using this as, a, as an example, but just where I say, well, I, I don't really want to be called a lady. But anytime, if someone were to say, if I say, or, or don't call me this nickname or this, this version of my name, and someone's like, well, I want to call you that. And that's not honoring to me. So just asking people, whether it's pronouns, whether it's different words, um, I read a lot of Native American writers, indigenous writers, first peoples writers, and a lot of different people and different tribes and nations want to be called what they want to be called, what they call themselves. Um, So it's just a big learning curve, but I think it's so, so, so important if you really wanna love people and know them to find out what words they they wanna be called. And I can't remember how I even got off on this tangent. What were we talking (laughs) about? It's, but I love the tangent. Like, it's not even a tangent yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, because as you were talking and you mentioned the LGBTQ plus community, and I immediately thought of RuPaul. I am RuPaul's biggest fan. I've watched every episode of RuPaul Drag Race. <laughs> oh, and, awesome. um, and the word sissy, which is a derogatory term. Mm. But RuPaul took it back and she, in one of her songs, and it may even be called Sissy That Walk. And it's like, I love how people take back derogatory terms, taking away that power to harm and just saying, it's just a word. And now I'm going to use it and make it something good. So thank you for that. Uh, I I also wanted to ask, um, at the beginning of your book, you dedicate your journey. You dedicate the book to Rachel Health Evans. Rest in peace. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful soul. And so you speak about wrestling at first with kind of her point of view and her book and one you crying for days over Rachel Held Evans which you write about 
I also cried for days when she passed. Mm. I just could not believe. Mm. And so this episode will definitely be in honor of her life, her legacy, and how she also changed my life, which I found her at two in the morning on, on Twitter and just became addicted to her Twitter. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, and so anyhow, we can talk about that later, but, but I wanted to ask in you wrestling with Rachel's journey and her points of view on all things faith, as you discuss your own discomfort, what kept you moving forward instead of running away and saying, nope, 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 not doing this. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Yeah, I can vividly remember the fear. <laughs> and I think it was so, we were so much alike. Like her story was so much like mine. She was just so zealous for the gospel, for truth, for telling everybody in her public school about Jesus. It, same with me. I'm a few years older than she is. And um, I did that same, same thing. And I was just on fire. And I think it was because in my heart, I, I wanted to be a good person. I wanted to do things the right way. I really, really cared about truth, but I was under the impression that I had the truth in my possession and I had to protect it and guard it from the things that were gonna come in from the outside and try to harm that truth or harm my beliefs. So because I respected her intelligence, because she had convinced me that she was very, very, very passionate about God and Jesus and the gospel, same as me, it made her someone that I could trust. So when she started questioning things that I had always held to be true, and they were things that I had had nagging doubts about, but I had just insisted upon pushing those doubts away and, and thinking that the goal was stand firmer, stand stronger. Don't let anybody try to get me to doubt because that's what I was taught that the people quote unquote outside the faith were trying to put little chinks in my armor or try to knock my walls down. And I just had to stop it um, using whatever I had in front of me to do, to do that with. And so when she would start to say things that were like, oh, you know what? I had that question too. At first it scared me because I knew these were questions that if the answers were something different than I thought, everything could crumble. And this was my whole life, my whole identity. I did not, I did not want this to crumble. And at first I, I really associated that crumbling with my faith not being strong or me not being a good person. I didn't know if I could handle that. But the more that I heard from her and that I would just kind of tiptoe into reading, I thought, you know what, I, let me just see. Because if there is something here that I didn't get right, and I really do care about truth, I really do need to know this. And this was all happening kind of at the same time as my first trip to Cambodia. I'm starting to care more about the poor, something that I had not really done for most of my life. I'm starting to, we, we started attending, we helped plant this multi-ethnic church and I have more black friends and all these things are kind of happening at one time. And I'm just getting it from a lot of directions. And these aren't people who are outside or enemies. These are people who love Jesus. And that was new to me. 
because I had kind of put us in categories. We're here on the inside and those people are all out there. So when people on the inside were questioning and opening my eyes to things, I had to, I had to pay attention. I had to listen and they were right. Everything crumbled. <laughs> they were right. It was a slippery slope. They were right. Once you start to care about the poor, then once you wake up to white supremacy and racism, and once you see how the LGBTQ community is being traumatized and oppressed, like you can't stop. Like you, you can't stop because it is all connected. And I see now that the powers that be, the people in charge, the patriarchy, the white Christian, whatever, they know that once you have your eyes opened, then it's it's going to be you're going to find out all the truth because this country is is built on lies like the narrative that we believe the church's like the history of Christianity built on lies like you that information, that knowledge, that true history is out there for people who want to find it. And so they try to keep people from finding it. And we're, we're seeing it every single minute in 2022 with people not wanting us to know the truth about so much. It sucks that we're still in this fight and it seems, I mean, it's not worse than it's ever been. It just feels that way to us maybe because we're living in it. <laughs> and the other things are just things that we read about in history books. But yeah, so to answer your question about why did I keep going? Um, because I really did care about the truth. And I really did have a heart for people. And I really did and do. And that cognitive dissonance, I, it wouldn't go away. Like I had to solve it somehow. I had to figure out, okay, let me read what Rachel is saying. And if she's wrong, well, then she's wrong and I can dismiss her. But if I can't figure out how to show that she's wrong, then maybe she's not. And I absolutely could not. <laughs> like, there was no way because she was dead right. Like she was absolutely right. But yeah, she just gave me so much hope that I could change my mind. And I'm meeting, I've met some people recently, three women, three white women, 70 years of age and up who are on anti-racism journeys who are like just, it's, it is, it gives me so much hope. Like it is never ever too late. I mean, I've kind of given up hope on some individuals, I think, but, but other people are saying, you know what, I, the, whatever time I have left on this earth, I can make sure I'm not harming people. I can make sure I'm doing this the right way. I can make sure that I know the truth. That's really encouraging. Thank you. I'm, I'm also wondering when your eyes started to open and you're on this journey and you're listening differently. And, you know, I always say, once you see, you can't unsee, right? Yeah. Yeah. So once you're, you're in this point and you're, you're relearning, unlearning, and, and it, there is a lot of fear, but did you ever face fear of alienation or abandonment? And if so, what was that like for you? Yeah, I faced the fear of it. And then I faced it actually happening. <laughs> um, I, I think the first time, and this was in different stages. So I'm trying to think in 2009 is when um, we helped plant this multi-ethnic church. So around 2009, 10, 11, this is when I'm um, making new friends and we're in this church and we went on our first trip to Cambodia in 2010. 
And in 2012, um, the beginning of the year when Trayvon Martin was killed, one of my new friends, we've been friends now for about a year, maybe. I can't remember the exact timeline, but she was a black woman who had put on Facebook how hurt she was that none of her white friends were talking about Trayvon Martin. And I remember thinking, what, Trayvon who? And so I went and Googled this and found out about it. And this was the start. Like, and looking back now, I'm thinking, how do I go my whole life without knowing about black boys getting shot by police? And yet that was the truth. That was the truth of my life that for every unarmed black child, man, woman that was getting shot by police or whatever was happening, lynchings of all kinds was off my radar. Why? It, I didn't have to pay attention, right? I didn't have to know. I could just know the things I wanted to know and go along with my life. So that just started this huge snowball for me. So we had these meetings at our church, um, black friends, white friends. We had some people that got so upset about this and they left the church. And it's one of those things where you, you join this multi-ethnic church with a black pastor for whatever reason, but then we want to talk about racism and you're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's like, okay, what, why did you, why did you join this church? Um, but just the things that I started learning, I would just put them out on, it started on Facebook and then eventually I was on Instagram and I would just put these things out there. Well, it pissed a lot of people off. Looking back, I just jumped in. I didn't know anything about how to handle it. I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know that shaming people might not be the best approach. I still don't know that I, <laughs> that I have the right answers. I just knew, hey, I'm learning this, this new true thing at age 30, whatever. And you all need to know about it too. Like we cannot just go along on Facebook well, our black brothers and sisters over here are grieving for boys that are shot down in the streets. And we are just continuing to, to talk about our puppies or whatever. Um, so I started saying those things. People would get mad. I started um, hinting at the fact that I might become affirming where I thought gay marriage was OK. So we moved to Cambodia in January of 2015. And. Uh, maybe it was part, partly that I was on the other side of the world and I couldn't talk to all these people in person that I might have gone into overdrive on the internet. <laughs> like, hey, hey. <laughs> um, but that was when I started getting a lot of messages from people like, I don't appreciate that you're posting this. And it was just coming from all directions because I was in that, that slippery slope. I was talking about racism. I was talking about um queer issues. I was talking about things I didn't believe in the Bible anymore. I was talking about, I've read this, I'm learning this, I'm doing this. I think women should have a right to choose what happens to their bodies. All of these things, I'm kind of processing it out loud in front of everybody. And, and a lot of people were freaking out. So I don't have a tally of how many friends I, <laughs> I lost. Um, I, every once in a while, I'll go check on someone. I see that we're not Facebook friends anymore. I'm like, oh, so at some point... <laughs> Um, the hardest part for me was someone very, very close to me. And I don't usually mention who this person is. So I'll just say they're very, very, very closely related to me. Started being very bothered, very upset by the things that I was saying in 2015 and 2016. Um, we've visited the States 
from Cambodia in, in 2016. I saw this person. And then over the next year um, or so, they decided that if I did not repent of the things that I believed and they made a list, like all these things that I had said on Facebook that I had written about that go against the Bible, that the Bible was pretty clear that they would not be able to have a relationship with me. There's a verse somewhere that says that someone doesn't repent, <laughs> then you can't have a relationship. So I did not repent because I did not want to repent. And all the things that I was accused of were true because I had changed my mind and in, in what I believed about them. So when we visited the States again in 2018, I did not see this person and their family. Um, then we moved back in 2020 and I've still not seen them. Um, so that was the hardest thing for me. I mean, days and days and days, I would just cry at the loss of this relationship because they were not budging from their views. And we had been in a relationship for 35 years. So um, they weren't budging and I wasn't going back. Like I just could not. And at that point, I felt as strongly about my new views as I had my old views for so long. Like I, back then when I believed being gay was wrong, absolutely positively wrong. Well, now I am so firm in the opposite, that it is not wrong that you, that God created us how we were created and it's just as holy and good as being straight. And so that was devastating. There've been other, that's the only one, the only relationship that, that truly crushed me. Like a lot of the other ones moving away to Cambodia for five years, I kind of lost touch with some people. It's harder to keep in touch with them. So when they decide they don't want to be your friend, it's not like the person that you're eating dinner with every Thursday night. You haven't seen them for a while anyway. So, so that wasn't as hard. And, and we moved back to South Carolina instead of Ohio, partly because of the toxic relationships and the people that had um, disowned me or didn't understand me or didn't know what to do with me. They were up there. <laughs> and uh, my sister, lives here we're backdoor neighbors here in columbia south carolina my brother's in north carolina so and then i have a sister up in ohio but we i decided we're going to start over here in this place um because my brother and my sister um we have we don't have the exact same views but we they have not disowned me they have not um they're they're open to learning my brother is an anglican priest and is also on an anti-racism journey and all these different things. So we are learning and growing together. And I, I don't believe that people need the same exact views as I have for us to be friends. What I do believe is your, your views can't be harming people who I love. And I mostly love everybody. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I put my finger up like an old church lady because... <laughs> I would like for you to say that again about the views. Your views can't be hurting people that I love. Yes, that we, we don't have to have the exact same views to be friends, but you can't be holding views that are harming or hurting people that I love. Um, and that's the part that I feel like so many Christians in particular just can't wrap their minds around they don't want to admit that their views are hurting people and are harming people. 
Um, especially the now, yes, and going back in history, that Christians have a horrific history of harm, starting from the very beginning in this country, starting with the people who came over with the idea of manifest destiny and God gave me this land. How convenient for your white God to give you land that already belonged to people. <laughs> I mean, and then we just plowed over everybody and and stole bodies and brought them over for whatever we needed. We, we did it and we claimed that God was blessing it. That's, that's really all you have to do. And that that's going on today. People just can claim anything. God is blessing this. Look at, look how God has blessed this. Look how God has blessed this without any thought at all to what you did to get there and who you stepped on and who you used and who is suffering while you're thriving um, and you're claiming it's God's blessing. So what, what a mess. <laughs> well, what it makes me think of, and, you know, as I listen to you, I resonate with so much of it. And even in my own faith journey, Marla, I kept coming up with this, this thing, when you, when you said the statement of, you know, basically your beliefs or, or whatever can't be harming people that I love. At the root of American Christianity, we know that the Bible, that Christianity was used to dominate, mm -hmm. to take, to have power over, to enslave, mm -hmm. to terrorize. Mm -hmm. And so millions, billions of people lost their lives and, and the Bible was used as, if you don't believe, you'll die. Well, they were going to die mm -hmm. anyways. Yeah. Because that is what the oppressors needed to happen in order for the oppressors to take control. Mm -hmm. But they used the Bible to justify mm -hmm. their violence against Africans and against the indigenous people. And I kept going back to that and that that terrorizing people in order to have control and that the root of that is what formed American Christianity, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And I could no longer believe in a Christianity that is rooted in the terrorizing and the oppression of other people. Absolutely. And I... I haven't gone to church in five years now. I don't know my future, what that looks like. But what I found for me personally is I tried for a while to separate that. I tried to separate Jesus from, from all of this, this other stuff. But what didn't cooperate is the, are the churches around me or the other Christians. Like I couldn't find... Um, a place or a way where I could be guaranteed that those would be separated. I think people try and then they give up or they don't care to or whatever. And for me, I found that I would rather stand on the side with the people who are being hurt than try to stay with the people doing the harm, but try to fix them, make it better. But it's almost like I want to show 
others, I will give that whole entire thing up. I'll give up the whole thing of Christianity if it means that I can love you unconditionally, that we can be together, that we can lock arms and fight for a better world. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know if it's possible to, to change the church from the inside out. People have asked me, why don't you stay and try to just fix it from the inside? And I'm like, well, then I'm, I'm with the oppressors. Like I can't put a sign on me that said, here I am in this church, but I'm not, <laughs> like, I'm not one of the oppressors. I don't believe what they believe. I tried that for a while. And so, no, it, I, no, I can't. Well, there, there is no fixing white supremacy. Oh, it has man. to be torn down. Yeah. It has to be burned. There, there is no fixing. Yeah. It's too big. It's too much. And it's done too much harm over hundreds of thousands of years. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, since yeah. the very beginning, it's done too right. much. And so, and that would only continue to also harm you. So Mm -hmm. uh, the going back in and just trying to fix and being the one voice. Um, so I wanted to also ask every person that I know that has been on the exangical deconstruction, decolonizing journey, there's been some loss. You've you know, there's, there's been a lot of loss, a lot to grieve people, family, friends that are near and dear communities that we once belonged to that we no longer belong to. And all of that is, is just a part of the, the, the spiritual uh, trauma. But what have you gained in this journey? Wow, that's a great question. And I can honestly, honestly say that what I have gained so far outweighs what I've lost that I really wish all this would have happened a lot sooner. Like I wish that I don't know what it would have looked like if I was deconstructing at 20 um, instead of 35 or whenever I, I started. But I think maybe if I had to narrow it down, like to the biggest thing that that matters to me and that I've gained is five, let's see, five, five years ago this December, I started an Instagram account called white girl learning and it came about because I realized that being this voracious reader since I was four years old, if I were to add up all the books that I'd ever read, like in a pile, books by white people and books by people who aren't white, <laughs> my white people pile would be through the roof, would be like this huge, huge pile. And books that I'd read by Black authors, Latinx authors, Asian authors, Indigenous authors would have been so much smaller. And I, I remember hearing people saying, well, I don't know what this big deal is about reading diversely. I read a book because it's good, not because of what the author looks like or what color they are. And that is false. You, if you do not intentionally read authors um, that are diverse, then you're going to read white authors because those are the books that are out there. Those are the books that are published um, and talk about Christians like harming people for hundreds of years. Something that's really struck me lately is how much we stole from enslaved Africans in the way of them use. I mean, so many things, but this particular area of 
How many books would they have written? How many things would they have created that we stole because you're not allowed to read? You can't do this. You don't have time to do this. All of these things. And then all of the white books. Like I love old books. I collect books from the 1800s. Well, they're all by white people. Why? Because black people were not, they were enslaved. They were not allowed to learn to read and to write. And all of that was stolen. And I look at this as, as a way of making, making things right. Like now it is rare for me to read a book by a white person. They got to be somebody that I really respect and admire. And I've been reading like all their books or whatever. Um, Like I have bookshelves behind me. Every single book on here is by a black author, indigenous author, another author of color. Uh, Because for the last five years, that's what I have just been. It will take me the rest of my life. If I live to be 95, I will need all of that time. And I read a couple hundred books a year. I'll need all that time to read stuff that's already been written that I missed out on. Because I read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry in seventh grade. And I think that's the only book in school that I remember reading by a black author. Um, But what I have gained, to go back to your question, is this whole world of brilliance and beauty and culture and things that I never knew. These authors that I had never read. Toni Morrison, like I've read, I have one more book of hers and I've read her whole canon. James Baldwin, I've got two more of his. All of these, there are times that I get really pissed, like just super angry that I I didn't know about these literary greats when I was reading all these Christian Amish novels or whatever the heck I was reading. Um, but just making up for, for lost time and realizing how much you miss, like how in a white centered world, not only is it wrong, it's, it's, it's literally missing color, like literally missing just massive, massive amounts of beauty and and words and thoughts and ideas and and stories and so yeah that and plus all the friendships that I've made and all the people um I think I still have some friends maybe who are who would still consider themselves in the conservative Christian camp maybe not (laughs) maybe I don't Uh, maybe I just think they're my friends (laughs) but the the new friends that I've made it's like, so Instagram, like you were telling me earlier that you were checking with, with some people to see what kind of person I was, like how, the, how they knew me. And I think that, I mean, sure, you can lie about who you are online. You can try to be someone different or whatever, but it's kind of a lot easier to tell this is the kind of person I want to be friends with. Our values are lined up, all of this. And you can start, like you and I could become good friends today because we know what each other is about. We read each other's books. We know and we're like, yes, this, we are tracking. This is, yes, this can be a friendship. Um, whereas all these people from my past, we just all went to church together and we all believe the same things. Well, I don't believe those things anymore. So it's, it's, not, it's not a good fit. So to answer your question, I gained 
books and friendships are the two the two big things that I gained and I just I would never go back to a time where I don't know the truth of history. I don't know things that happened. Like I was telling uh, someone just the other day that I maybe I learned about Jim Crow laws in high school, but I remember being 30 some years old and our black pastor friend telling me about this book, the new Jim Crow. And I'm thinking, what is Jim Crow? Like at 30 some years old, I just, and part of that is just my love for history. Like I grew up, my, my dad is a huge history buff, but our paths have diverged because the, the people we think of as heroes are now different. Like my heroes are different than his heroes. And um, that has been a point of contention <laughs> with us. But I, I love the life that I have. Is it easy? No. But just the things that I'm passionate about, and I'm also passionate about, and this is something I don't know that I've ever shared publicly, but this idea that's brewing in me. And I was talking, I went on an anti-racism three-day journey with the legacy trip a couple of weeks ago and was thinking about Black women in particular who are studying history. Letty Gore, you know, Letty's a, a good friend of yours. And thinking about how unfair it is for black women in particular to have to earn a living and then in their spare time, learn history, read black authors, all of that. And I would love to, and maybe I'm just putting this out there right now, start this thing where it's just, I collect all this money and then pay black women to read books or pay them to learn history or whatever they're passionate about, but it's not fair that they also have to earn a living. Like, kind of as a, as a micro reparations thing where, yeah, I'm just, I'm passionate about black women learning and teaching and like, just with your podcast, this is a labor of love. You're doing all this work and just let's get some money. Like let's, let's, I don't know, but yeah, oh, that's another story it. for another day. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, you have a poem called, well, it's by Helen Exley. And it's reader beware. And you say books can be dangerous. The best one should be labeled. This could change your life. I just love, I've never heard of that poem before, but I just loved it. Mm. And I wanted to just ask, you may hate me for this question, but I wanted to ask <laughs> if you could name one book. Oh gosh that has recently changed your life where you said, oh, this is so good. I am going to say, Read Until You Understand by Farah Jasmine Griffin. She is a Black woman historian. And my favorite books are books about books. <laughs> and she, I read, that was my first book of hers that I had read, Dante Stewart. Do you know Dante? Um, he's I've a, seen him. I do follow him online and I want to read his book. Oh, okay. His book is another one, but you said just one. So I found out about, um, about Read Until You Understand from Dante's Twitter. He was reading this book. So I got the book. I read it on an airplane. Um, well, not the whole thing, but I, I read it and I was reading Dante's book at the same time. And then I went on to go buy more of her books. And I just read one recently called Harlem Nocturne. 
And she just talks about one writer, one dancer, and one singer, Black women, in a decade, just the like 19, I want to say 1930 to 1940. And she traces their, like, their lives, their history, what's going on in the world. It's just fat. She's just brilliant. Um, and so, yeah, I could never pick just one, but that one, Read Until You Understand, she talks about black literature and how it shaped her how her dad who died when she was nine um instilled in her this love for reading a pride in her blackness um and then we've connected online and she bought my book and read it i was like oh my goodness (laughs) i'm so excited but just being able to connect with people and i was telling letty this on the trip that I sometimes get really sad when I think about um, people like James Baldwin and Toni Morrison, who I never got to meet, I never got to hear them speak, um, or people in the civil rights movement that I'm reading about, and they've, like Malcolm X is one of my favorites, and just the, the, like, what if I could have met him, or what if I could have heard him speak, and so I'm just always thinking about today and now, who are the people that are doing this work, who are writing, who are um, studying history, who are starting movements, and I can learn from them now, today. And Letty is one of those people. Like she, watch out for her because she's gonna be. I told her it's gonna be like when people are so excited. She was so excited when she met Angela Davis, and I was like, that's gonna be like 40 years from now. People are gonna be like, I met Letty Gore. <laughs> like I, I got to meet Letty Gore. Um, and so yeah. But I, I do read a lot, lot, lot of books. I write in my books. Um, I wrote all over your book. I could show you some of that. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's how that's how that's how I pay attention. If I'm mm-hmm. reading nonfiction, I have to have a pen in my hand because I pay attention that way. I remember that I can go back and reference. Um, yeah. Thank you, Marla. Thank you. And I wanted to get to, because I know you have a question for me about my book, What Children Remember. And so let's talk. Okay. First, I have a comment and then I have a question. Um, But I am so inspired by, especially recently, by any writer who is breaking the silence over something difficult that happened in their lives. So that is what you do in your book with your past. I'm reading right now um, The Cancer Journals by Audrey Lord, And something, I wrote this down. She said at the very beginning of the book, silence has never brought us anything of worth. And she talks about how she wants to talk about this. She wants to talk about her breast cancer and her mastectomy and that, that all these women are going through this, but no one's talking about it. And she wants to break that silence. And you did that. I did that somewhat in my book. Um, people have called me brave for writing these things that I've, that I've written. Um, the next thing that I'm working on um, is about my divorce, about my ex-husband's adultery. Um, I, I think what I bookmarked this in your book where you say, I did not write my story to cause shame or embarrassment to family members who are still a part of my story today. I wrote my book and I tell my story in order to free myself from years of shame-based secrecy and to cast a light on the darkness of child abuse. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm in the right place. I think you did that. Like you waited until you were 
ready. And that I never once thought when I was reading your book, like, oh, she's just trying to get back at somebody or she's clearly you are not. So I want, I know the pain of adultery, the pain of divorce, and I want to help people. That's what I've done for most of my writing life is I have something has been hard for me or hurt me. And I want to tell you so that you feel less alone. Like I have people sending me messages almost every day about my book on Believe and saying, that's my story. That's how I felt. I had someone disown me. I have this, I'm gay. And my church like kicked me out. My parents kicked me out. When, when you can write about something and I know that people are reading your book and have never verbalized their that that pain that shame i'm helping a black woman write her book right now she's a fabulous speaker but she doesn't love to write so she'll send me voice messages of her story she told me the story of abuse that happened to her and she started crying when she was recording it and she said i just realized i have never said this out loud like it was 37 years ago and i've never said it out loud and so writing for for finding freedom for yourself freedom and healing but then also for every single person who's going to read that story even if it's not just like yours so okay that was my big long comment <laughs> my uh, my question i have more than one i'll just start with this one if we have more time um you you talk about how it's creative nonfiction because you clearly can't go back and remember an exact dialogue from when you're six right um, but what was it like, or how did you, how did you go back and remember those things? Like, did you look at photographs? Are you sitting in a quiet room and meditating? Are you talking to people? What was that process like for you? Yes. Yeah, so that is an excellent question. Um, we have the memories that we have, and there's so much that is still locked up due to trauma and due to time mm -hmm. and, uh, just having an incomplete, uh, a brain that's not fully formed because I was so young. Yeah. And so I did talk to family members. I did listen to music to help me to just with memory formation, to bring me back mm -hmm. in time to kind of, you know, to take mm -hmm. me back to that moment. I did look at photographs. I did meditate. And I would, I would just sit with and think, what, what do I remember? And then I would call a couple of family members that I'm still in touch with a little bit and say, mm -hmm. what was this time period like for me? What do you remember? What did I mm -hmm. act like as a child? Mm -hmm. How did you, I talked to people that I was in school with some of my classmates and they would say, we wanted to be friends with you, but you were so quiet and you always seemed like you were so fearful and withdrawn. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what to do. And so in hearing how other people received me, it made my experience real. And then I, okay, it wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just me. So, so I did all of the things, but mainly just really sitting with and and in deciding what to put in the book, I wanted the the story, the memories that kept repeating in my head. 
there are certain experiences that just kept coming up. I could, I can never forget about them. Mm-hmm. Most of them I put in the book and I really thought, how is this going to make other people feel? And I processed that in therapy. It's not really about them because this is my story and this is how these things impacted me. Are other people yeah. a part of it? Yes. But I own my story and the impact of their actions. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking so specifically about other things that don't have anything to do with me. I wanted to focus on my experience and how their life decisions, uh, their treatment of me impacted me. Their unresolved trauma impacted me personally. Yeah. And there was a direct connection. If, if it was other things um, and nothing's really coming to mind right now, I think I would have to really sit with it for a minute for some examples, but but if it just clearly didn't have anything to do with me, then I didn't talk about it. Yeah. I know it, but I'm not going to talk about it. So, yeah. so if I'm talking about, I, I can give you one example. If I'm talking about my ex-husband that, that I talk about in the book, our little mm-hmm. brief marriage. Well, I can talk about him cheating on me, but I'm not going to talk about um very specific things about his parents and his siblings Hmm. or very specific things about his history growing up where he grew up. Hmm. Even if I think it may have impacted our relationship, some of those things don't, they're not for me to tell. So it it does matter. And, And intent matters. What is the intent behind me sharing this very personal thing? Yeah. Does that answer your question, Marla? Yeah, and I just took notes on that because I'm going to remember that when I'm <laughs> when I'm writing about my divorce and I'm tempted to say something that's not my place to say. And I think I can I'm learning that I can trust myself and I can tell I can tell when I've written something and I've done it to get a jab in or I've done it for a certain certain reason. Well, I was going to say that Anne Lamott has a quote. I don't know it exactly, but she says something along the lines of, if you wanted me to write warmly about you, you should have behaved better. You should have behaved better. <laughs> I had that quote in mind as I was speaking. Yeah. yeah. You, you should have behaved better. Yeah. I love Anne Lamott. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah um, and, no, and the, I, I have another comment. In yours, I just wrote so many sad faces. Like you did this. my heart was breaking like the whole entire time. I could not, it's like, I almost, it was almost like, I can't handle this hurt for you. Like, how are you going on to the next thing? Each hurt, each hurt, like so many hurts. And when you talked about the part toward the end where just all of these friendships that would not work out and you just felt like people didn't want to be with you and around you. My heart was just like, aching for you and a couple weeks ago I listened to one of your podcast episodes with it was you and four of your black friends and I think there are four Letty Patty Marcy and Shay yes and I I got tears in my eyes I got tears in my eyes because I was like oh these are her friends like she like it took a long time it took a lot of trauma and you had so much to go through and and you like the the amount of vulnerability that you have to 
to, to make a friend when you've lost so many friends or so many people have hurt you when a mom, like the person who gave birth to you is treating you the way that your mother treated you to be able, if it's like, if, if my own mother doesn't love me, then who's going to love me. But you, I'm just so proud of you. Like you worked through all that. And then like, you could have a million friends. Now you don't have time for a million friends. I'm sure. Um, but then I listened to another podcast episode with your friend Andrea and how you had sworn off white women, but then along came Andrea <laughs> who didn't know that about you. And it's just, I don't know, like your story is so redemptive and so beautiful and so full of hope. And I hate it. Like, I hate that you had to experience that. Cause like you said, it, those memories don't go away. Like it, you can't change what happened to you. You can't change. I'm sure there are times when you see people having this happy childhood and you're thinking, I didn't have a happy childhood. I'll never have a happy childhood. Like that is never, ever, I can never get that back. And so my hope and prayer for you is that you somehow get back everything you lost and then some like that you have the most beautiful rich friendships that people see you they love you every part of you um when you and Andre were talking about how being able to be your whole self around people like those are the kind of friends you want and um yeah so I know it's not like your story has a big bow at the end yeah it's all better everything's great but Kind of. I mean, in a, in a way, it has so much beauty, I guess, that came out of ashes. Like, it's true what people say, like the deeper the pain that you go through, so, your joy is so much deeper. You, you're so much more grateful for things and realizing how loved and lovable you are, how worthy of love that you are. And these incredible people who want to be your friend because you are incredible. <laughs> anyway, so I just love, I hope, are you going to write more books? <laughs> I am. I am. Um, I have some stuff coming out. I have another book that I'm working on. I don't know that I'll ever write another memoir. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It just, yeah, we'll see. But I do have some other stuff in the works. We can talk offline about that. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll read whatever but, you write. <laughs> oh, thank you. And my heart is so full to know that you read my book, that you wrote in the margins. That is a an author's dream. Like, <laughs> wow. I And I'm going to talk about this on a later podcast. I'm going to record it today. When I wrote my book, my prayer was that, Lord, please let 10 people read my book, 10 oh, people, wow. because that's how low my self-worth was at the time. Oh, man. I said, yeah. just 10 people. And I didn't market it. Mm -hmm. I didn't put it out there. I just, I just put, I just, I published it and then I left it. I never spoke about it on podcasts, like for the longest time. I spent a whole lot of money to self-publish. That's a whole other story. I'm going to talk about that in my podcast, <laughs> but I just thought if 10 people who, who just got you, 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 you write this, whatever, you, you know, you, you're in control of this journey, God, you are, you are in control of this journey, but if 10 people read my book, I will be satisfied. I won't ask for anything else. 
that's how low I thought about Mm. myself, my story, my journey. And so many, I don't know how many people have read my book, but certainly more than 10. Certainly it sold more than 10 copies. (laughs) It's been two years. We follow each other on Instagram. You know, I don't talk about my book. I don't put it out there. I don't. And every month it keeps selling and it keeps selling and it keeps selling. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't understand it Mm. because I'm not saying a thing about it, but I know that, that, that is God ordained for that to happen. Mm. And it's like God saying it's, it's, I got this TikTok song in my head. Like, let me show you what I can do. Just let, just you watch. (laughs) Let me just show you. So I'm super grateful. Um, I just didn't, think that it would be in the hands of 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 so many people and now you're an author well you've been an author you know because you have other books so you see you know the power of somebody writing you and saying wow you wrote this book for me yep (laughs) yeah and that's why it's so important for us to speak out because it's not just about us healing our own pain we're helping and healing other people with our own story Mm -hmm. so with that being said, um, I want to say it's been a total honor. I want to drive to South Carolina and hug your neck and, <laughs> and and look at your bookshelf. Like I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And and if you would, can you tell people where to find you on Instagram and also if they can get a signed copy of your book or where to purchase your book? Thank you so much, Tasha. This has been awesome. I was I was so excited when you reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be on. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, people can find me best on Instagram or Twitter right now. So my personal Instagram is at Marla Taviano, M-A-R-L-A-T-A-V-I-A-N-O. And then White Girl Learning is the one where I, it's just exclusively books. It's all like you look through the feed and it's just going to be lots and lots of books. And all the authors are Black, Indigenous, authors of color. Um, And then on Twitter, I'm also Marla Taviano. I'm working on a website. Um, My ex-husband is the web guru that used to do that kind of stuff for me. And I um, self-published my book on my own for the first time. And he had helped me in the past do eBooks and stuff. Um, So a friend of mine is helping me get my website set up that will be marlataviano.com when it's back up but yeah so right now my book I published through Amazon um, so it's only available on Amazon but I do sell signed copies Um, you can just contact me through Instagram or Twitter that's easy to do Um, but thank you so much this was so much fun and I'm going to be telling everybody about your book and I know one tiny piece of advice I know you said this is in God's hands but I've I've learned also that just telling that I also tell people about my book like I've started to just pop my head in different places and be like oh so you're saying you need this I have this book (laughs) Um, because here's the thing we don't want to self-promote. We don't want to just talk about ourselves, brag about ourselves or whatever, but that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is you lived a story and you wrote about it, which is what 99% of the population says they're going to do. And 1% does it. I don't know what the real figures are. Seriously, And yeah. it's there. Yeah. It is there in print form, easy to purchase and people can read it and find healing 
So why would you not want to share this healing with people, right? Like this is not you bragging about yourself. You have healing right here in your hands. Hmm, should I tell this person about this healing or should I keep it right here? <laughs> I think you should tell the person, all the people, and I will help you do that. That is what love your neighbor as yourself to me. What do I want my neighbor to do? Buy my book right in the margins and tell everybody about it. So what am I going to do for my neighbors? Buy their book, <laughs> write in the margins and tell everybody about it. So that's what I will take over your promotion and publicity for the month. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh my God. And, and you're exactly right. I do need to be talking and will be talking more about my book soon. So um, I'll look forward to further Good. discussions with you and having you back on. Thank you so much, Marla. I just love you. You're so dear. I love you. I love you too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.